Hey everyone, welcome to the Above Board Podcast, a podcast about how to build a bootstrap business, digital privacy, and updates from our company, Fathom Analytics. My name is Paul Jarvis. I'm the designer, marketer, um, co-founder of Fathom. And usually it is conversations with Jack and myself about all the things that I just mentioned that we talk about on the show. But every now and then we have a guest that we feature in something called Privacy Stories. This week, I'm really excited to share a conversation that I had with Rand Fishkin, who is the co-founder of Spark Toro. So let's get right into this interview. So you all launched in April 2020, which was kind of around the start of this global pandemic. And you did so, I guess, without traditional VC money, even though you did raise a small amount from angels and friends. Why did you want to go that route? And then how just how are things going with everything? Sure, sure. Um, So let's see. How are things going first? Sure. Yeah, we we launched uh, a year ago. We miraculously somehow became profitable uh, by September of last year. So only a few months after launch, which was just incredible. And we have been uh, working over the last few months to try and kind of um, build back up our uh, bank account, right? Because we spent a bunch of money in the first two years of the business, really developing beta testing the product, building the audience, all that kind of stuff. And so uh, now we've got, you know, a a road to climb back. And and we use this very interesting format. I don't know if anyone else has a structure like this, but we, we open sourced our financial docs so that other startups could use it and some do, where essentially we raise money from, uh, yeah, private angel investors, and we basically have to pay them back before we can start participating in profit sharing. And then long-term, all of the investors and the two founders, we all participate in profit sharing together. So the idea is not to build a business that's built to sell or to blitz scale or to become a unicorn or die trying, but rather to build something that is long-term sustainable, profitable, makes its customers, uh, employees, founders, and investors happy, basically in that order. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So then why, because that, that correct me if I'm wrong, but that's not how Moz started. (laughs) (laughs) So why the, why the, why the difference, I guess I'm curious about. Paul, have you ever had those things where you do something in your life and you realize that everything about it was wrong? And so then you, (laughs) you sort of bias to a, to a new, more innovative way of doing things. You're like, gosh, maybe I shouldn't, uh, pour broccoli you know, into the bowl and then just boil it and try and eat that. Maybe I should try something else because that tastes terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I look, you know, Moz did a lot of wonderful things for, for me and for, I hope, you know, a ton of people in the community and, and employees and team and that kind of thing. Um, but I think structurally speaking, it really um, hobbled itself and it's, long-term and short-term opportunities by being a venture-backed business. Because mm-hmm. Moz was a um, a business that really could fund itself in a self-sustaining way 
on its own revenue and profits. You know, Moz has been profitable for, man, I mean, 10 years with a couple of exceptions, you know, a couple of years where, where it overspent. But um, really, there was no need to raise $30 million in venture. That initial 1.1 million in 2007, that got us to profitability. If we had kept focusing, we would have stayed there. Um, and I think Moz could have been an extraordinary business kicking off literally five to $10 million a year in profits. Yeah. But instead, instead, it sort of you know looks at five or $6 million a year in profits the last few years and goes, well, this is pointless. <laughs> like it, it, Moz would happily trade you know, $5 million in profit for a 10, 20, $50 million a year loss if the growth rate were just higher, because that's what a venture capital backed investment is looking at. You know, if you look at um, a business like SEMrush, SEMrush, which of course is in the same space as Moz, mm -hmm. and you look at their S1, their, their filing to, to IPO, right? And their, their recent IPO, you can see they're, you know, they're losing a ton of money, but they're a very successful business for their venture investors and for their team because of, you know, that that's how the structure is meant to go. So yeah. you just got to build things the way you want to run them. I am excited about the way that you're building SparkToro because that lines up with a lot of what um, I've written about a lot and about kind of how we're building our business um, on the Fathom side. So I, I really like that. Let's, how do you explain, and I know this is a, a, a bad question, but how do you explain... <laughs> Let me just preface everything yeah, with that. Yeah, 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 it's just sure. a bad question. Bad question. Ooh. <laughs> how do you uh, how do you explain what SparkToro does to somebody who would be a good fit as a customer? So not just like somebody on the street who's like, "What is technology?" Yeah. How, no, no. how do you describe how do you describe SparkToro for for somebody I'm, who would use it? So first off, uh, I take issue with your description as a bad question. This is a phenomenal question. <laughs> Um, and very important because SparkToro does something that prior to SparkToro, I am not aware of anything that did this thing. Like it just, it. Um, I think very frustratingly for us from a marketing perspective, the problem SparkToro solves does not have a name. So people don't mm -hmm. Google it, right? Nobody searches for, I want you, I want to learn what my audience reads, listens to, watches, pays attention to, so that I can go do marketing in all sorts of smart places instead of just throwing dollars at Google and Facebook. That, that is a problem. It is a problem that a lot of marketers have, but it is not something that we generally search for or even know to look for. And so it's been a real unique kind of challenge presenting this to people. So when I explain SparkToro, what I say is basically, uh, imagine if you took a list of thousands of your potential customers, right? Like, oh, well, I, I know Paul would probably buy my product and Marissa would probably buy my product. And they, they seem like good customers. Let, let me take a thousand of them and uh, aggregate together all of their, I'll go visit personally visit their Twitter accounts and their LinkedIn accounts and their YouTube accounts and their Reddit accounts, whatever, all their social accounts that are public. And then I'll look at everything that they follow and talk about and hashtags they use and words and phrases that are in their bios and content. And then I'll aggregate all that together so that I can get a real sense at scale of what my audience is like, what they do, how they behave, what they pay attention to. That way, I can go build better products for them, create better content for them, go do smart marketing in all sorts of smart places that reach them. That is what SparkToro does. 
but instead of forcing you to manually visit every single one of those and then copy and paste everything to like an Excel spreadsheet, yeah. it, it's just a giant database that does it for you. Okay, gotcha. I like that. I think that's a good. And I, I clarified because I felt the, the question wasn't good. So I clarified with better information, which made the question better, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, you just real time pivoted. Yes. It's amazing. <laughs> So part of Spark, so I guess the mission that I, that I found on the website is identifying where audience spends their time and attention, which it sounds like what you were just saying. Yeah, so, that's, that's exactly it, right? Like we yeah. all have to do market research. We all mm -hmm. have to understand our audiences. We all, unfortunately, assume that we know this stuff. Mm -hmm. Do not. Yes, we, we assume that we know this about, uh, about the audience we're trying to serve and we don't ask them or look into it. Yeah, and <laughs> almost everyone who runs a Spartoro search is surprised by something like, yeah. oh, I did not think my audience paid attention to this source. I didn't think they listened to this podcast. I didn't think they used this hashtag. I didn't think that these words and phrases were often used in their bios and job titles and descriptions. And yeah. oh, no kidding. And I guess it's it's good to know because I, even in promoting the last book that I promoted, I, I realized these things after I had done them. Like I, I would do a podcast and I'd be like, okay, this is just a a normal size podcast that has a, a, a decent reach. And then I would do it and we'd see like, okay, I sold thousands more books the day that this came out. I was like mind blown about this. And I think being able to see that information is pretty good. So... I guess it's <laughs> useful. I mean, if you want to sell thousands more books. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so this is, I guess, what's kind of interesting um, uh, on our end and, and for our audience is, okay, well, this, this kind of information is useful, but if I also want to respect privacy, how do we, how do we kind of approach this and how do we think about this and how do we say, okay, well, if we want to learn about our audience, how can we do it in the most privacy respecting way because it seems like and this is what we've struggled with as well is it seems like sometimes privacy and marketing can be at odds and I, I don't think that they are but we haven't always explained this as best we could so I'm really curious about your take and and and, and thoughts and feelings about that sure let's see so uh first off I think that the big tech companies, Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, generally speaking, um, have abused a misunderstanding of privacy to conflate um, privacy and privacy theater and to consolidate their nefarious monopolistic powers. Mm -hmm. um, and so essentially, you know, just as when you go through the TSA at the airport and they make you like throw out your water bottle and you kind of go, hmm, is that... Is, is that actually protecting anyone or is that privacy theater? It's mostly theater, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's frustrating, but we all sort of live with it and it's fine. And, and in the same way, right, um, Apple and Firefox and, and Google and everyone says, oh, you know, the privacy problem is that uh, Zappos can show you the same shoe that you visited on their website in advertisements around the web, that's a violation of your privacy. I, I don't believe that for a second. Like that does that does me no harm whatsoever. Seeing that shoe as opposed to some, I don't know, ad for some 
uh, Viagra or something, whatever the generic ad that was going to be shown on that website if they have no data about me, that that hurts me in no way. It is completely non um, impactful. And yet, this is where all of these big tech companies have centered the privacy conversation. They have not centered it around we, big tech companies, store ludicrous amounts of detailed data about everything you've ever done in giant uh, server banks. And we're the only ones who get to use that data and other people don't get to use that data. And so this helps us protect our monopolies. And by uh, implementing you know, laws and customs and technology that protect your privacy, we are in fact simply benefiting our own monopolies. That's what's really going on. I think anyone in, in tech understands that that's what's going on. Um, the privacy, the kinds of privacy that I really worry about are uh, security issues, hacking, mm. phishing, right? People, my, my mother-in-law who calls up, oh my God, I think someone has my credit card. Like <laughs> my, my mother-in-law is Italian, but she sort of sounds like Ariana Huffington because she learned English and <laughs> the dodgy end of London in the 60s. Anyway, but so um, the, the, the reality is those are real concerns. I think that there's com- important conversations to have around that kind of stuff. I would like to see more efforts in that realm and less in the, the Zappos shoe I visited follows me around the internet. Mm-hmm. So broadly, that's, that's my privacy rant. And then I can talk about SparkToro, which is even if you think you know, you're like, I disagree with you, Rand. There is a real problem with that Zappos ad following around the web. Well, you're probably going to really like SparkToro then because it is, yeah. I, I mean, I do disagree with you. And I think that that is an interesting conversation, but I do very much want to hear. I do very much want to hear about um, how SparkToro deals with it. We can, Let's put a pin in that. Let's talk about that next. I think for something like a shoe, definitely, right? I, I don't care who knows. I, I don't have a good taste in shoes. I think for me, it, it, it's, it's interesting because for something like shoes, yeah, I don't care either. I run a privacy company and I don't care if another, if, if shoes follow, if shoe ads follow me around the internet. If I'm looking at something like counseling, for example, mm-hmm. then that becomes, okay, well, hmm, do I want that? Or I look up a medication that I'm, I'm thinking about taking. Then it's like, okay, well, what does that, and we were actually testing this, um, uh, my co-founder and I, Jack with, uh, with that, FLOC today, um, cohorts in Chrome. And it was changing our cohort based on, they say they don't track sensitive information, but we were trying this looking up um, things related to depression and mental health and that, and it was changing our cohort. And that kind of thing definitely makes me feel very uneasy with the amount of data that big tech has on us as far as okay, well, what should I show this person or what type of ad should I show this person or what type of content should I show this person based on preferences that they have? And then with FLOC specifically, this is just something that we've been thinking about for the last week. So it's it's at the top of my head as far as like privacy in general. It's like, okay, well, that kind of thing can then, you can pull, you can see the cohort ID, like I can punch it into, have I been flocked? I think the EFF created that. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, if, if somebody can see my cohort from Chrome and I log into their website, then they now see, okay, this cohort is attached to this bit of personal information. Um, I believe that is not possible, right? Because basically a website operator cannot get your, cannot associate the flock cohort 
well, okay. or any sort of th- whatever third party cookie with your um, uh, when you log in, right? So Google gets to do it, but yeah. not the website operator. Well, yes, but Google um, on their GitHub page for uh, FLOC says that sites that know a person's PII, uh, for example, when somebody signs up using their email address, could record and reveal their cohort. This means that information about an individual's interest could be made public. So this is, yes, you're right, obviously on Google's end, but it's still information that is personal and tied to a cohort. Oh, okay. Well, so so this is this is a good conversation, right? This is a reasonable, very reasonable to me to say, hey, it's totally fine if a Zappos ad follows you around the, the web. Um, should we have uh, different rules for sensitive information? Potentially, that mm-hmm. seems reasonable. Yeah. Should we make sure that um, a website on which an ad appears cannot associate which ad Google chose to show you with personally identifiable information that they might give you when they log in. Also good. That seems also reasonable. Those those two things I think are eminently reasonable and they are not part of the conversation that big tech is having around protecting your privacy by preventing Zappos from showing (laughs) you a retargeted ad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Zappos is a poor example. Let's use REI. Right, mm-hmm. REI is a co-op. They're a great company. I like them a ton. They're based here in Seattle, or or Patagonia, right, which is just a wonderful firm. Yeah. Or darn tough socks out of Vermont, right? Tiny little company sells amazing socks. Should they be able to retarget and remarket to you after you visited their socks and follow you around the internet with their ad? I think so. I don't think that hurts you one bit. I don't. I think that actually makes your internet experience generally better. And I would love to see small businesses who do capture some consumer attention be able to continue to market to those consumers. I think that's generally a good thing. But do I think that there should be protections on uh, sensitive information and protections for, you know, basically that if Darn Tough Socks is also serving ads on their website, they shouldn't know which medications you're interested in? Sure. Yes, I do. Are, is that the conversation that Fang is having? No. And I think it also comes down to an uh, ability for there to be consent, right? Because right now I can't, as far as I know, and I tested this, I think it was last week, you can't opt out of it as a user of Chrome at the moment. You can, if you are a website owner, add a securities header to your site that say, don't include this information in cohort information. Right. But I think that... Uh, I believe... I think it's either the EFF or somebody like them has a, oh, maybe it's Brave, has a Chrome plugin that you can use to obfuscate your... Yeah, and if you're using a Chromium browser, then yeah, there's definitely different settings than just base Chrome. But for me, like I I might not be offended by shoes, or you might not be offended by shoes, but for some reason, I might be offended by shoes. So the ability to have some kind of consent also, I think, would be reasonable. And they've said, I think Google said that they were going to build a way to opt out of it, but they launched it before there was a way to give consent or not, which feels kind of... I mean, dirty. ad blockers, <laughs> I think, by default do a lot of this, so... But you can't in Chrome. That's why the, that's why FLOC ah, exists, yeah, because right. they want to get around ad blockers and third-party script blockers. Yeah. So they've, they've branded it, like you said, as this, as this new flavor uh, of user digital privacy, when really it's just... Like cookies are dead, long live cookie-like tracking in a different way. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think the the um, the one thing that a 
generally speaking, privacy advocates like about uh, Flock is that it is um, you're in a group of people like you. And mm -hmm. so being able to specifically identify you from that data is hopefully impossible, uh, even for Google, supposedly. What I hate about it personally, what I think is terrible and which you know the EFF has pointed out and, and Mashable and a bunch of reporters is essentially it's a naked power grab for monopoly position. Because if Google is the only one who knows all, mm -hmm. your, all of everyone's browsing behavior and then gets to anonymize and aggregate that data, only Google is the one that every advertising firm and every advertiser and every source of advertising has to go through. Yeah, and they have the they have the market share for browser right now. It's like 70, 80 percent of yeah. internet well, users and, use Chrome. And and they're the uh they also benefit substantially from the California privacy law and GDPR, which they were both you know, which they their mm -hmm. advocates lobbied um to make those laws very friendly to Google. And I mean Europe has basic uh, Europe's legal structure around GDPR is essentially consumers. Um, we are going to make the web more painful for you to browse. Um, all the people who were abusing your privacy previously, they're probably going to keep doing it um, because, you know, they're they're sort of sketchy. Uh, but however, we will make sure that no European startup ever competes with Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook. Um, we will make sure that the American monopolies <laughs> remain that way in the EU. It's it's a mind blowing law. <laughs> It, it also, it kind of reminds me of how the recycling movement started, where the biggest lobbyers for recycling yes. were Coca-Cola, right? It, it was the big companies who yes. said, okay, why don't we put the onus of recycling on the consumer when consumers are responsible for such a small amount of recycling? It's mostly big business. It's mostly like a hundred companies in the world. Yeah. And putting the onus for privacy on, yeah, it is a pretty good analogy. Putting the onus for privacy Perfect. on the consumers is there's only so much that you can do and there's like it's I, we've spent two or three years dealing with gdpr we're basically a company that exists because of laws like that because we're gdpr compliant and spent thousands of hours and, and worked with lawyers for thousands of hours to yeah. kind of build a solution for that and it's yeah it, it's difficult and it should it's not regulating who it should it's just making it worse for us as people, individuals surfing around the website and clicking, no, I don't want to see this cookie. Yeah, this. yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I, I, you know, every time I, I hear from folks in the EU who are like big defenders of it, they're like, no, well, it really does prevent all these small and needy businesses from collecting this data and abusing it. I'm kind of like, mm, you know, the people who are abusing it before are the same people who keep abusing it. Mm. Uh, and they, you know, exist in territories where it is less regulated and more difficult to do this, or they route all their stuff through there or whatever. And also the, the real problem that you are trying to solve um, is uh, the security issues, right? The phishing issues, the hacking issues, um, and the uh, personal data that someone would like to keep away, out of the hands of the most problematic folks who tend to be the biggest ones who are the ones who benefited the most from this. Mm -hmm. So just... Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard because I understand that these types of laws should exist. I just wish they worked a little differently. Well, yeah, and this it's is a, I mean, this it's is a good problem, idea, right? To, yeah. 
if, if you know, Facebook and Google come to you and say, hey, you should put some privacy laws in place, you, you, you got to run away real skeptical. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So I guess let's, I, I want to talk a bit about, um, ab about marketing. So I think this is an important conversation, um, uh, around, even just uh, keeping in mind the things we just talked about with, with privacy. So how are you currently approaching marketing with SparkToro, given that you're a very different company than, than Moz is or was when you were doing marketing for the company? I'm kind of curious how this works because you're basically... One of the best pieces that I read on, on your website was how you are, it's the two of you and you hire basically the best contractors, the best freelancers, the best agencies to do the work. That's how we, that's how we operate. I'm curious how that, how you kind of approach that then. And was there a learning curve in the beginning to think, okay, well, this is now very different. So how do I want to do this? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say the learning curve was pretty shallow for us. Thankfully, I know a ton of people in consulting and agency world, which I know you do too. And, and a lot of those folks are in the digital marketing universe and whatever their friends and colleagues. And, um, and they have, you know, in addition to obviously us paying them and working with them at, at their normal rates, they also have a strong incentive to like do a great job for SparkToro because, you know, it's a, um, we are likely to refer great business to lots of folks. Uh, so that, that helps. I would also say, um, one of the one of the reasons that I love it and have found so much value in it is that it seems expensive until you compare it to the alternative of of hiring a full time person. And look, if we, you know, if we were in a country that offered um, healthcare for its citizens, it would be a, a pretty different story. But in the United States, you know, with a two person startup, um, healthcare costs. If we were to hire a full time person even at a, you know, a smaller salary, right? Let's say, let's say we could get someone who's relatively junior for between 60 and 75 K a year, um, you know, in a non top tier city where you, where you have to have six figures to be able to afford rent and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, we could certainly do that. And then we would probably be adding 30 to $40,000 per year on top of that in just their healthcare costs. Because that's if you want to provide good healthcare and you're this tiny, that's how much it costs, right? And it, it doesn't that number doesn't start to really go down until we're like 10, 15, 20 people. It only becomes truly affordable over sort of 50, 100 people. That's when, you know, Moz, for example, at 150 employees or 200 employees has very expensive healthcare, but, uh, you know, per person, it's, you know, whatever, 20% of their salary, not. 30 or 50 percent of their salary yeah it's it's weird too because I, I i taught um a freelancing course for about eight years and that seemed to be the biggest hurdle for people um was if they were in america <clears throat> they had to consider how much healthcare cost i mean I, i've been canadian my whole i've lived in canada my whole life and it's something that just always it, it boggles it boggles my mind oh, yeah. that it's such a there's such a cost. I mean, there's all sorts of costs associated with it, but just the financial cost associated I mean, with it, like, and that's like a third. You're basically saying it'll cost you an extra third or more to yeah. pay for a, a person to to work. I for think you full I think time. for us, it's between thirty five and forty percent. It it really depends on how much you're paying the the person, right? If it was a yeah. two hundred thousand dollar a year employee. 
uh, it's more like a you know under a quarter, but that's still huge, huge, <laughs> just wow. massive. Um, yeah, and and very you know it creates all sorts of horrifying incentives. For example, um, if you hire someone and um, they get pregnant, right, or they and their partner get pregnant, like suddenly your healthcare costs like just go haywire at this at this size which in in a way i feel like that should be illegal because obviously that creates an incentive for discrimination yeah for sure i have a financial incentive to hire people who are unlikely to start families or to change their family structure or to get medical issues Right. Like essentially, it's in my interest to screen for cancer risk among potential employees. That's horrifying. You don't want to create financial incentives like that. Like it is illegal to discriminate on those basis, on those bases. Mm -hmm. And also, the healthcare industry in the United States creates an incentive for every business owner to do it. This is this is what this is what happens when brutalist late stage capitalism um, essentially is able to lobby politicians and propaganda outlets to convince a whole bunch of the population that, you know, they should reject the idea of being taken care of um, at scale. There's also, I mean, that's, that's seems like a, a huge one, right? But I think there's, there's other things as well when thinking about, okay, what the cost of this full-time person versus the cost of hiring just the best person to do the job for the amount of time I, I need them. And it just, to me, it, it seems like, for myself at least, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but for, my, for myself at least, I want to do the work that I like to do and that I'm good at doing and that I want to learn how to get better at. I don't know how to do HR. I don't, there are many more talented people than me who understand, like HR is in of itself a full-time like thinking about thing to do, which I don't have the brain capacity to do. And it's also something I don't want to get better at. Right. So for me, I don't I don't want to hire people because I don't want to have to be responsible for that aspect of it. I just want I just want to do my work. And for me, that like that it make, in making that decision, the consequence of that is running a small business, which yeah. I, yeah. I feel like, OK, that the Jack and I are basically suited to do. So here and that. here's the wonderful thing, Paul, right? Like what the world needs more of absolutely is more small and medium businesses offering lots of competition in every space. Mm -hmm. What the world does not need any more of are big companies. Like right? So so big companies, generally speaking, are uh especially when they are monopolistic or duopolistic, right? So sort of mm -hmm. Facebook and Google in advertising or Google themselves in search or those kinds of things. Um, it creates a negative drag on economic productivity. And and yet Unfortunately, I think this is poorly understood by most people, right? They think that, whatever, we want another Amazon. No, no. The only people who want another Amazon are investors in the next Amazon um, and potentially the founders of that next Amazon. Yeah. Uh, and they've just done a great job of convincing everyone else that you want them. Yeah. You, what you really want are tons of Fathoms and Spark Toros, you know, and, and maybe Mozes, right? And those kinds of like small to medium-sized businesses um, because they create much greater amounts of uh, income equality, mm -hmm. right? You you don't pay yourself a billion dollars a year because you, you can't. 
And so instead there are, you know, 10,000 businesses like yours with people all making a hundred thousand dollars or, you know, whatever yeah, the yeah. number is, but you get the idea. And so that, that's sort of a, a beautiful thing. This is a big part of why, you know, if you go to Spark Torres about page, like why we want to be a zebra, why I wanted to build an anti-unicorn type of company after going the venture route. Yeah. And that, I mean, that makes sense. And I think, yeah, that it's really important to emphasize the fact that it is better for the economy. Like it has been proven through so many economists that many small businesses existing is far better for the economy, far better for people's yearly average wage than huge companies that just dominate every market. Another contrarian view that uh, that you have through through reading your blog is that you take a different approach to churn than almost every SaaS company. The that we can be friendly to both short and long term customers because they are both worthy of our consideration, and you don't mind when people sign up for a bit and then leave and then come back and then sign up and use it and then leave. How did you how did you come to that and how? How do you then be friendly to those? So what do you do, I guess, to be friendly to those types of customers who just want to use SparkToro for a spell? Yeah, yeah. So we we sort of intentionally built the product and the business and the subscription model knowing that this was going to be a common use case, right? That essentially the problem SparkToro solves around market research and understanding your audience and knowing what they do online, that that would be something that many marketers, consultants, agencies, CMOs, whatever, all these types of folks would do once every now and again. Um, and actually, to be, to be fair, a lot of consultants and agencies do it all the time. And those are probably our most um, loyal recurring customers, right? Those are, those are the folks who stick with their subscription month after month, year after year. Uh, but a lot of folks, especially in-house or like one-time market research folks or folks who are using SparkToro the first time, they're like, hey, I just need to do a bunch of research this month. I don't know if I'll need to do any more in the future. And so by offering something where we say, hey, there's no commitment, we'll send you an email three days before we charge your card, nudging you to quit and cancel. And like it's one click to cancel if you don't want to maintain your account, right? Having a um, I think there's a pa an account pause system, right, where you can basically go down to like a low tier of usage um, and it'll maintain all your account details and your searches and your lists and blah, 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 right? So all these kinds of things that we built intentionally are designed to support this concept. And our belief is that will create more goodwill and more um, long-term evangelists and advocates for the product, people who find value in it over hopefully the next, you know, the decades that to come that SparkToro exists and, and provides value. And we don't, you know, we have no venture investors. We don't have to raise a next round. We don't have to help our VCs mark up their portfolio, some number so that they can raise their next fund from their LPs, blah, blah, blah. We, we don't have to participate in any of those misaligned incentive dynamics um, and instead can say, if so the lifetime value of an average SparkToro customer is $800 or $8,000 or $200 or whatever it is, all the numbers are fine, right? That That is not important. Our belief is that there are not businesses 
and marketers that don't need this data. Like everyone will need it at some point. When you're starting a new business, when you're growing your product lines, when you're trying to refigure out your marketing plan, everyone will need it at some point. So we have a huge market opportunity. We're, we're not worried about that at all. I'm much more worried about making sure that we have a great experience for everyone who uses the product. And that includes your financial experience and your sort of like subscription experience. So come, leave, great, no problem. Don't mind at all. I think that bucking um, things that are, this is the, the, the best way to do something, especially in SaaS, it sometimes builds the most brand equity as opposed to just following best practices. As even, I, was, I was talking about this today, like people thinking that adding the unsubscribe link in their newsletter in the tiniest font in the lightest grace was like, that doesn't reduce churn. That just increases annoyance. <laughs> well, and, and uh, the, the fascinating part is um, it creates the exact wrong kind of incentive because mm -hmm. what you basically want is anyone who doesn't engage with your newsletter, you want them to unsubscribe as quickly as possible. Yeah, it costs you right? less. You don't want them in your audience because it's more likely to go to the promotions tab in, in Gmail. It's more likely to get marked as spam. It's more likely to, that then that will drag down your deliverability metrics and it will drag down your engagement numbers, and therefore all the mail, all the email platforms are less likely to treat your mail as important in the inboxes that really matter to you. And it costs you more as a sender. And it costs you more, <laughs> right? Every single one costs you. So, what is the real incentive, right? The real goal should be get rid of everyone who isn't engaging with my email newsletter as soon as I'm confident that they won't engage in the near future. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's how you how you're approaching things with SparkToro is if they're engaged, great. If they're not, then they're hopefully happy with the time that they have, and then they'll hopefully yeah. come back. I think that great. I think that's something that a lot of businesses don't think about enough is is reputation and and brand equity and building that goodwill with the people who are giving them money instead of just trying to okay, how can we extract all of the revenue we like, how can we get the LTV as high as possible for every single yeah, person? I mean, it's... And, and look, you know, part of it, um, you know, it depends what your what business you're yeah. in, right? If you are, you know, if, if you're in cryptocurrency, like you need to convince a whole bunch of other suckers to buy the cryptocurrency quickly and drive up the price so that you can sell yours before it inevitably crashes, because it's obviously a thing that's not worth something in, inherently, right? It's like gold. Like you just need everybody else to prop up the price until you can get out at a higher price than, than what you got in for. To the moon. Um, and so there's like this culture and this incentive model around that. And um, I don't like participating in those kinds of ecosystems. That doesn't feel great to me. I'd much rather be in an ecosystem where the incentives of the business are aligned with the incentives of the customers. And this goes to the privacy issue too, right? If you're somebody who cares deeply about privacy and marketing, SparkToro is a great um, match for that because we don't collect any data that is non-public. Like the only things we can see ever are things that are publicly available on the web, just like Google can see them on a web page. Yeah. Right? We can't get, we get no data about anything private. And even when we collect that publicly available data, we throw out all the PII. Yeah. Like we, we don't have your name. Like we're not going to show you if you do a search for, you know, whatever. Um, my audience uses these words in their profile 
uh, audiophiles, right? Like people who really care about sound quality and they're, they're super into that, blah, blah, blah. We don't have their all their names. There's not like, you know, Joe and Matt and Chris and whatever. Like, no. But all we have are aggregated in like 15% of people who are who say they're audiophiles in their bio on LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook or whatever and have a public profile. They do these things, right? They have, they visit the, you know, they, they, um, whatever, listen to this podcast. They're subscribed mm. to this YouTube channel. And it's not that one person, it's 15% of these 10,000 people. Yeah. And that's, that's the thesis for Fathom is analytics that separate the individual information from the trends. So you can right. see, okay, 15% or 150 people visited this page on your website or 3,000 people came from this refer. I think, data in, I think data in aggregate has got a bad name. And I'm glad that uh, SparkToro and Fathom and others are, are kind of bucking that and kind of showing people I how mean, data, Yeah, data in aggregate is exactly what you want. You want the census, yes. right? Yeah. Oh, okay. You know, 16% of Americans do X or Y or Z. You know, 23% of Canadians, um, I, I don't know, are worried about home prices in their market. It's probably more like 98%. Yes, yes. All, right? It's everyone. It's all of us here. <laughs> it's everyone. Right? But, but like that type of data, super good. It's useful. Uh, it does not expose anyone's private information in a way that is either a security risk or a reputational risk. It is just useful aggregated data. And that is exactly what, yeah, SparkToro is doing. That's what Fathom is doing. I think that's what a good version of even Google's Flock would do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then how do you, I guess... I guess what I hear from my industry far too often is, well, well, marketing is evil. Therefore, we are not going, we're going to be proud about not marketing. I'm like, why are you hurting yourselves? And I think a lot of what this conversation and what you're saying here is that marketing doesn't have to be X. It can be, okay, it, it, marketing can be, I guess just communicating honestly with with customers or potential customers and yeah. I mean the way I think about marketing is that it is inherently uh as only as good or bad as the thing being marketed right so yeah. if you make a high quality product that solves a real problem in someone's life and they can pay you money and then goods and services can be exchanged for currency and then the right the sort of uh, market and economy of the world can rise as a result, and and you can see what sort of, you know, the rel the the most healthy form of democracy and capitalism can combine to raise the standard of living to extraordinary levels. Right? Can create better public health, can create longer lifespans, can create happier happier people than every other system that's come before it. And so I, I don't I don't get the the fundamental argument of it is evil and wrong to tell people that you have a product mm -hmm. or to show them the problem that your product solves. You got to be the that pitch guy no for marketing. Like I, I, I'm signing up for what you're putting down. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I fundamentally, I cannot see the counter argument to that. Yeah. Right. I, I, you can, you can get into the weeds and say, I don't like this abusive form of marketing. Yeah. I don't like this dishonest form of marketing. I don't like dishonest or abusive forms of anything. Yeah, that, that's straw manning, right? You you don't get to use the, hey, here's this negative version of a thing 
So the whole thing is bad. Is there anything that I missed or that you thought we would talk about <laughs> that we didn't talk about? Oh man, I mean, Paul, I was really hoping to rant about like six or seven more things, <laughs> you know, in a really angry sort of passionate way. <laughs> shake, shake, shake's fist at screen at clouds. Yeah, yeah, like exactly. Um, no, no, I we <laughs> we have we have done uh, all of it. So yeah, I just want to say thank you, thank you for. Oh for, my gosh, no, Paul, it was absolutely my pleasure. 